seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. When I set out to become a wizard, I started with two very important understandings. The first was that the process of becoming a wizard would require turning an idea into an actuality. I had to take the ineffable substance of thought and form it into the physical, tangible material we call reality. The second was that I couldn't do this alone. I needed other people to believe in me, in my wizardry, and the magical works I wanted to share. After performing my ritual and declaring myself to be a wizard, I built a website, www.personasawake.com, which is sort of real, but also still pretty intangible. So I decided to write a book. My dream was to stand in a room with other people, perform a ritual together, and usher this book into corporeal existence. And by that, I mean getting copies printed. But printing books cost money. And I knew I only wanted to print a small number of books. This was my first major work as a wizard, after all. So I wanted it to remain rare, a precious object for the chosen few present at the beginning. I also didn't want to get stuck moving a dozen boxes of unsold books for the next decade. So that's how I decided to do a Kickstarter. I formulated the Kickstarter as a magic spell and asked for help making this book a real thing. And it was the process of making the Kickstarter that really did make me a realer wizard. I bought my first set of robes to film the promo video. I created something that invited people into the world of weird, playful wizardry I sought to create. And I hit my target goal of $420, chosen just because 420 is funny, and I had no idea how much it would actually cost to print a book. And thus, a hundred copies of that book, Mysteries of the Deep, were printed, distributed, dropped at random, and now exist as the rare magical artifacts I once envisioned. If you're curious, you can purchase a digital copy of Mysteries of the Deep at www.personasawake.com shop. But now I'm writing a second book, a bigger book, a realer book that articulates my wizardry and magic more fully that I've ever expressed before. And I know that when the time comes to birth this book into the world, making copies available to anyone who wants one, I'll call upon the magic of Kickstarter once again. And thankfully, since my last project launched, Kickstarter itself has gotten a lot more magical. And while I'd love to take credit, it's really mostly due to Meredith Graves, director of music and magic and divination at Kickstarter. Meredith fronted the punk band Perfect Pussy, appeared on air for MTV News, wrote for numerous print publications, and ran the record label Honor Press. Alongside those endeavors, Meredith has maintained an in-depth practice of magical exploration and scholarship, and was one to push for Kickstarter, defining magic and divination 
as its own standalone category. So if anyone can understand the magical process of bringing ideas into actuality with the help of other people, it's Meredith Graves. Serving as the doula for countless occult Kickstarter projects, Meredith has helped many up-and-coming artists, witches, wizards, scholars, D&D nerds, and diviners bring their ideas into existence. So I couldn't think of anyone I'd rather talk to as today we learn how to kickstart your magic. Greetings, Meredith. Hi. Now, I was just musing about this, but I think this is the second time we've shared space together. And the first time was after the New York Times wrote about me being a wizard, and I got some sort of message from you, and you invited me into Kickstarter's physical space to just hang out, and I think at a happy hour, and just, you know, chat with a wizard. Uh, and it was a very lovely little afternoon that we spent in fun startup Brooklyn world. And now we're here in my abstract interdimensional wizard space where you are partially a representative of Kickstarter. So it's kind of like a little inversion there. Yeah. Gosh, time is flat. Time is fake. It's been a wild few years. I I remember so many people coming in when the Times ran that piece and saying, Mm. you two must know each other. You two must know each other. And me going, I do not know this person. And everyone's saying, well, let's get this person to the office. And you two should probably, how, do, how is this happening that you two have not met before? So I do, I remember inviting you into our, our large astral tower in Greenpoint. And we had a lovely day. I love a good astral tower. That's, that's right? a very important part of being a wizard. Uh, <laughs> what's our magic word going to be? Mm, well, what are the normal criteria? What, what are your broadest hopes for when someone comes into your interstitial multidimensional zone and brings you a magic word? I hope they share the word that comes up for them. I have no other criteria, no other restrictions. Well, the magic word I think I've sat with most lately is integrity. That's a great one. So I think that's going to be a wonderful guiding light for this conversation. On the count of three, say it with me. One, two, three. Integrity. All right. Now, why does integrity come up for you right now? In addition to the classic band, right? Yeah. Got to start loud. Um. The concept of integrity is something that, you know, pending its application in various linguistic settings, it can be understood or deployed really Mm. a lot of ways. And integrity is also something that I'm parsing it out, as you can tell. This is like meditating on it really heavily lately is because I'm parsing out its many roles in culture when I've seen it in a lot of cases is one of those deploy words from so-called mm. experts, especially in the field of business, right? Like one must have integrity. Behave with integrity. Yes. Personal integrity. But personal integrity. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Or rather, what do people mean when they use that phrase? And, you know, this is like so fractal here, but when someone says you must act with personal integrity, the obvious implication there is which I have, which is why mm-hmm. I'm you. That's why I'm speaking with this voice. <laughs> I've heard now more recently this idea of integrity kind of elucidated as, and this is why it's important to me when I'm in a setting where I'm speaking, in a situation where people might hear it, mm-hmm. integrity is keeping the promises that you make to yourself. Mm. And so for magicians of any and all stripes, occultists of all backgrounds, healers, folk practitioners, whatever the word is that resonates with you per your cultural background, your lived experience, your current practice, malleable as that may be for you or not, um, a key thing, you know, I don't want to hear it from the chaos in the comments. I'm just going <laughs> to put that out there. Y'all can set, say you're going to do all sorts of, it can yeah. be lies all you want. Fine. That's part of your, that is part of your integrity though, low key. 
that keeping the promises that you make to yourself is like a key component of nearly all magical practices. And um, I, I see that as also like differing from religious practices too, where sometimes you don't necessarily have to maintain that because you have perpetual forgiveness or or whatever the case may be, um, which is also cool. It's just different than what I'm talking about here. Um, that idea of keeping the promises you make to yourself, to your people, to your field of being, mm -hmm. to your field to take a term from the great Aidan Walker, who sometimes refers to like the spirit world as the field yeah. and what its inhabitants may be. Uh, integrity with the field, integrity with yourself, integrity with your commitments, your your practices, your whatever you track to make sure that you're on your right path, that level of integrity. So uh, I better be ready to, uh, what, I always mix up this phrase and it comes out sounding crazy, but don't let your mouth write checks that your ass can't cash. <laughs> <laughs> I think that phrase might be a little bit inherently off. Like I don't, like my my ass is not in the habit of cashing checks. First National Bank of my ass operating with integrity. Don't let your mouth send Venmo payments that you're your ass can't cover. I don't know what the, the more modern one would be. I think um, on integrity though, the, my mind leapt to the idea of like architecture and buildings and structural integrity, which is sort of, you know, um, a stability in a way. And I think the, the you know, a, a building either has integrity or it's compromised and now it's dangerous. And I think when we're trying to create these identities and practices and belief systems and values for ourselves, that's what we want to do is we want to create a structure that is stable and supportive where people can come to us and not feel like we've sold out the corner of it to some other interest that is now causing us to be quite off balance. Mm -hmm. On one hand, I think, I think that's a great, say back to the idea of what well, I mean, even in the like the common parlance, in the common way, we will sometimes hear about a foundational practice or the yeah. foundations of your practice. But I also think that's a great intro explainer for why Freemasonry makes up the basis, which is heavily rooted mm. in the of integrity of so many Western esoteric practices. And this is something that about a year ago, for the first time in my life, I started, <laughs> I love being in the kind of environment where I can just be like, source, ghosts told me. Yeah. Uh, this is one of those. Ghosts told me that suddenly for the first time, I, I'm like a, a Victoriana kind of silk couch, rotting blouse, mm -hmm. see arsenic wallpaper kind of person, like historically, right? But all of a sudden, right around this time last year, ghost bros told me that suddenly I was supposed to get really interested in like modern architecture. Mm. And it's like very early 20th century, more avant-garde design. And I'm kind of like putting all my magical pieces together. I'm like, what is it in my life that's causing me to have hours every night of dreams about chairs? <laughs> yeah. And I started to research the Bauhaus and the Bauhaus's impact on like subsequent design movements. And I found out founders at the Bauhaus were masons or were deeply invested in Freemasonry. And I started to look at things like, you know, the chairs of Marcel Brouwer. And, you know, you're seeing on one hand, I'm seeing all this with like, very cool streetwear boys on the Instagram algorithm who wear like cool ass New Balances and mm -hmm. baseball caps. And then on the other hand, I'm like, those chairs were made by Freemasons. And I thought, you know, that is saying back to like exactly what you were saying about the integrity and the foundation of the thing, uh, getting into, you know, that era and what the rebelliousness, the philosophical rebelliousness of that era meant in terms of design mm -hmm. and integrity in that era of political history. And long story short, I have a lot more chairs than I used to. <laughs> that sexless, lawful, good energy in my in my house. It's been a cool decision. It has a weird interplay, you know, like Brower chair, 
tutu collection hanging from the window. Like, it's not for everybody, but... Well, I think the idea of craft is coming to mind where, like, masonry is both a sort of ritual craft as well as a practical craft. And I think sometimes that's one of the issues in modern occultism is that we lose the practical craft. And if you're going to go hire a mason and they're not able to lay bricks, you're like, I don't think you're good at what you do. And you can see that so much clearly, like you have to transmit these things in a way that's functional. But in this era of smoke and mirrors on Instagram, people can be very good at social media and hide the fact that their craft is um, pretty compromised and lacking in integrity. And so it's, it's harder for us to kind of get to those foundational bases as you described. I mean, I told you yesterday was my birthday and I, I turned 35. I'm a certified old. I've been a practical magician of some like distinct level of awareness and commitment since I was 11 years old. I've been a witch longer than I haven't at this point in my life. Right. And I've posted on Instagram once in three years. (laughs) Story is a mix of foster chihuahuas and like elaborate cakes and occult memes, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like projects my friends make that I'm very proud of. And I fall into those traps where I'm like, I'm not really doing a lot to communicate to people the sincerity of my, you know, my institutional research. You know, I I only talk about things when I have a project coming out in conjunction with another person, like the textile work that I do with Coleman Stevenson from The Dark Exact. Would we have like one of our planetary magic projects to release? Like, then you can see when this podcast comes out. Mm -hmm. Ah, I got to go on Devin's podcast. How great. Like just two wizards chilling, right? Yeah. But am I posting about things? Am I educating people? Am I making reels to debunk, you know, settler colonialist myths about, you know, I have my family genealogy back to the 1500s and I've done a ton of like attempted restorative work and understanding that granddaughters of the witches, you blah, 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 kind of yeah. Nana's horse pocky trying to unpack what it means to have had ancestors in the United States via Canada. I'm doing this work. Am I shorting myself by not needing to communicate it on the internet? Doesn't mean I'm out of touch. Doesn't mean I'm old. Doesn't mean I'm bad at marketing, God forbid. And then I get to that point where I'm like, the only way that this is a reflection on my personal craft is that it tells me I am weak in the craft of social media Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I am, and I am doing the rest of it, which is why I'm worried about this. That's just me being awkward on the internet. But my memes are, are, are great. Yeah. My freshly sourced memes from, from lots of people who are funnier than me. On the other hand, I find myself talking to people constantly. A joke that I, I'm a broken record, but something I hear myself saying a lot in the world is, it's called the craft for a reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a seamstress and I use uh, historical practice and technique um, and depth textile investigations to, as one you know, I, I do that for a lot of reasons. I investigate magic and do research for a lot of reasons and via a lot of pathways. But the easiest way of replicating the actual clothing from soup to nuts of an mm-hmm. era of magic that interests me has been my pandemic project. It's greatly assisted me in my understanding of historical practices of magic, like very specifically. It's called the craft for a reason, right? Yeah. Like I don't think a lot of people necessarily look at Let's just take corset making as an example, which is something I do for fun. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of people really look at corsetry and think that's nice and suitably Solomonic. But like, all you you kind of just scratch the surface a little bit and, you know, you very quickly find out that while corset making was its own guild and weaving was its own guild and sewing was its tailoring was its own thing. 
dyeing fabric, just as one like a very soft core example, was the province of alchemists mm. more recently than it wasn't. So like there are, you know, direct and indirect magical links to almost every kind of hand, even before you dig into, you know, regional folklore about sewing and weaving or knitting or cord spells, or you can take it in a million different directions. But given there's magic linked into everything, it's called the craft for a reason. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a big soapbox of mine. Well, I think we live in a deconstructed world right now where all of these used to blend together. Now, almost any intro book on magic, and there's this weird straw man argument with like, magic versus science and the materialist scientist in a lab coat that is like scolding you about atheism. And I think that's a you know, a straw man that's not really an accurate representation of the world anyways. But before, craft was, we do these things sometimes because there's a very specific occult reason to. Sometimes it's because it's the way grandma taught us to do it. And it just all blends together. And now I think we have this thing where we have to seek out magical information from external sources it's not generally a family lineage and it's completely disconnected from the way that we get food the way that we get clothing uh there's a different form of magic that is tracing container ships that float across the sea to get places uh there's lots of occult things in that process that we keep out of eyesight but it's very different than taking on something and doing it like you said soup to nuts talking with brian cotnor on the podcast a few years ago and he just made the point of everyone thinks, you know, everyone got really excited about Jung and was like, oh, alchemy, it's just all about psychology. But he's like, no, you also have to do this stuff. And I'm not saying you're going to turn lead into gold, but by seeing how these different materials transform, it is a understanding that you take on that you don't get like, you know, if you read a book on how to build a birdhouse, you're not going to understand building a birdhouse as if you hammer a few nails and put one together, even if it kind of sucks. <laughs> and this is also just <laughs> why I love Brian Cotmore. <laughs> he is just of the whole like large community of friends of which we are part. There is nobody cooler than Brian Cotmore because he does it. Yes, he does it with practical laboratory alchemy, but he does it with music. He does it with color. Mm -hmm. He makes zines and it's alchemy like that man. He's a genius. If anyone listening to this doesn't for some reason have like all of his books, I heartily encourage you to get them at your yeah. earliest available opportunity because he's amazing. Or check out the How to Do Alchemy episode of this podcast that you're listening to right now. Absolutely. But no, I feel you. And like on one hand, we have the entire history of human life, like as we know it, as was documented by whoever documented it at our fingertips. And so we should be able to, mm -hmm. <laughs> I say we should, as if this isn't like utterly reflective of me and my crazy brain and the way it works. But in my estimation, one should be able to hear the occult nature of how container ships get our food to us and think that would have been impossible without the work of John D. First yeah. guy to ever get on a ship and say, hey, you know, you can use those Christmas lights up there in the big old sky to like navigate your boat, which people like didn't believe for a while. But on the other hand, I have long called for, and this is something that, you know, a few years ago, I was getting side-eyed at conferences really hard by people who I think would prefer if I weren't there saying stuff like, okay, we probably shouldn't have to go on eco-feminist retreats to look at sticks in order to be in touch with our environment. Like if we need to get in touch with a water source, we should be able to identify what it means for our magic if that water source is flammable. Yeah. That's it too. Invasive plants are it too. If you're in New York and you're dealing with, you know, Datura as it has taken over the city or knotweed as it's taken over the city or the six foot tall poke bush in my backyard. Mm -hmm. I don't know why our supers just let it get totally out of control, but like, that's what I guess the kids are saying. Now you need to go outside and touch grass. Yeah. But like you need to like environment doesn't mean woods you go to once a year. Like 
And that's the grandma magic that I'm like specifically very interested in. It's when we talk about bioregional animism, I mean, like what's four feet outside my back door when I take my little dog out to pee? Like, Right. Yeah. I think also having a more holistic interpretation of your whole world that, you know, if you're in your apartment and you order a pizza from Domino's off an app and it comes, that's not this one little interruption. Then you can get back to arguing about magic on the internet forum, which is the real magic. All of this is the real magic. And that doesn't mean that everything is bad, you know, oh, there was this good way that the world was natural and now it's all bad and corrupt. But it also doesn't mean that there's not real problems and that we haven't lost something when we've gone from handcraft to third world sweatshops. Like there's there's definitely things to be aware of. But I think you're right that we tend to want to um, sweep those under the rug and then go to the retreat where we can tell ourselves the fantasy version of this and kind of just uh, play around in that. The Domino's Pizza Egregore is a fantastic example of why I'm personally so excited <laughs> about being a professional wizard working in tech. But you hit upon something really interesting there, which is a recent subject of fascination. And this is like my favorite annoying thing to do when I'm lucky enough to be on somebody's podcast or something is like, if you're listening to this, da, 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 and you know more about this topic than I do, which is going to be anyone who knows anything about this topic because I'm new to it, get in touch. I'm currently doing research into this exact topic of aesthetic pastoralism. I am mm. specifically unpacking because here's the thing. It goes back to the ancient, ancient, ancient Greeks. This idea of far before us, there was a time when the world was natural. Right. And unfortunately, we don't have that. Like the ancient Greeks were writing about this. There was Alexandria. There was like, you know, Arabia. Yeah. And especially in magical disciplines and even in magical fiction and poetry, there's always been this like long, long ago when the cows grazed wild and, you know, everything was infinitely more beautiful in another time that we've since totally botched. And you can carry that through line from the ancient Greeks up through Marie Antoinette and the Petite Trianon, which is particularly interesting to me. You know, a lot of what my research is, is I'm looking into aesthetics and digital cultures and occultism, right? Yeah. And so as people are talking about the pandemic and cottage core, mm -hmm. and there's so many constituent elements to that from like, lesbian separatist farming and the radical fairies in like the 20th century, all the way to like, literally eugenics and the farming push by the wives of major SS officers in World War II and the Petit Trianon, like I mentioned, but also like Aradia, the Gospel of the Witches, like so many factors at play here when we look at the complexities of a romantic pastoral approach to curating aesthetics. I am finding a few primary sources. A lot of them are to do with pastoral poetry and literature. I would love to talk to anyone who is interested in this topic and has scholarly research to share because this is, I think, an important conversation. And I think some really, really smart people are already starting to unpack it, but there's so much to say on the topic. If people want to say more, they should they should find me on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's a fascinating topic and you're hitting at something that's very near and dear to me, not the specific content of that, but the difference between story and storyteller. And I think in the occult new age milieu, we have all of these stories, whether you want to believe that Jesus was initiated into mystery schools in ancient Egypt where he got stuff from the Atlanteans, or you want to think about, you know, the history of Wicca and witchcraft as an ancient religion that goes all the way back to Paleolithic times. These are stories. And those stories come to us from storytellers, which I don't want to compare it, but I think it's very important to look at the storytellers and recognize, oh, contemporary American mysticism owes a lot to Emanuel Swedenborg, who we don't talk about very much, or it owes a ton to romantics who we kind of are vaguely aware of, but we don't 
you know, we now have that version of, oh, I'm going to go out to the Pacific Northwest and do a retreat and like look at sticks. And we don't understand that this is an idea that came from a specific period and the cities are bad and the natural world with its old folk tales is where real magic lives. And that that is part of those storytellers that we have been influenced by. So yeah, I think this gets us back all the way around to integrity uh, and a bit of tortured logic. But um, you brought up Brian and his zines earlier. And I think punk rock is something that is near and dear to both of us and something that we grew out of. And integrity is essential to punk rock. It doesn't always succeed at having integrity, but it at least aspires to. Whereas I think that concept has sort of fallen out of favor in culture at large right now, where it's all about the image, the illusion, uh, juicing your stats for social media and marketing, and having just enough of the craft that you can create content, interchangeable, faceless content, whatever niche vertical you want to target, there you go. And that is what has caused, I think, a fractured landscape that is very hard to navigate because the things that are the shiniest might be the least authentic. And the people that are doing really interesting work are at home reading books and not <laughs> shouting about it from the rooftops. As someone who, in addition to all the magic stuff, naturally, I'm also a career musician and a former music journalist. I run the music department at Kickstarter. This is still like what I do, right? Right. Um, the landscape has changed so much and things that were previously accessible, widely accessible anyway, outlets to enact that integrity, because that's mm. all the history of punk at various points in its history in the States, in the West, however you want to like curtail that definition, integrity could be anything from prove you hate cops. Yeah. Be on a cop car to like prove you don't actually know how to play your instrument mm -hmm. these days more and more, you know, to prove, prove your allyship by not drinking or doing drugs or being bad. Straight mm -hmm. out of the or these days it's prove you're not a POS and yeah. you understand how to respect people who are different than you, which is great. That's been the definition of integrity, right? But then there's, it's it's participatory. Punk is a participatory culture, whereas like we're used to the idea of like the solitary practitioner. And we know mm -hmm. well, people can totally have educated, integrated magical practices that totally on their own, right? And they have forever. Yeah. In punk, it's so much more about perception and participation. So many of the ways that people used to be able to participate are gone. Either, I mean, mm -hmm. the pandemic obviously has so dramatically altered an already destitute landscape of some of the only available routes to that participation for musicians, i.e. touring, which is still the way that 95% of musicians make their money. Right. At the same time, with what people are now calling supply chain issues, with increased demand on media, with the so-called final revival that like mainstream publications try to push on us every few years, it is becoming increasingly awfully inaccessible for people to do something as simple as put out a seven inch, right? Yeah. Wholesale record costs are up to about $13 a pop, which is disgusting wow. and unprecedented, right? Yeah, it is yeah. rapidly getting to a point where... The DIY record label that you used to be annoyed to run out of your living room because you'd have 17 boxes of seven inches all piled up and need 14 friends to come over and fold covers and burn their fingers on glue and whatever nostalgia du jour is, is like rapidly becoming impossible, right? Even as younger people are continuing to get invested as they always have, and people are still interested in records and still interested in cassettes and still interested in the what we'll call like what traditional means of production and distribution in punk you can tell I'm in my mid-30s because I talk like that now. <laughs> I'm like a stinky hard token. Um, even though the old ways are still the best ways, they're becoming increasingly difficult to do. 
Well, they become, they go from being the way to do things to becoming artisanal. Like, you know, it used to be, this is how you make butter. And then as butter became mass produced along with every other food thing, now you have to go to the farmer's market in Williamsburg to buy the artisanal butter that guess what costs $25 a stick instead of this is the butter that we just have on hand. This is just butter. What are you talking about? So now if you want to make a seven inch, it is an act of nostalgia and privilege and defiance, but it's a lot easier to put something on Bandcamp, which is why I think so many of the um, heirs to the punk throne. Uh, I was fascinated by the way Vaporwave was a completely decentralized, completely offline scene. It existed on message boards and forums and YouTube and all across these other places. And then only after there was enough of a momentum, people were like, we sure would like to see some of these artists play live in a single space. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we could we could do that. But that was totally secondary. It was a complete inversal of that process. The thing I think about now that I work for an accessible tech platform is often like, okay, but who still goes to the library to use computers? Right. Do we serve that community? How do we like, you know, we think, even me, I'm a self-professed butter churner, right? I have a broken yeah. home seven and I work for a tech company. Um, I'm still thinking about people. We tend to disregard anyone with no access to tech. We tend to assume these days, like people like that don't exist. So I'm always trying to think about that, <clears throat> not in a romanticized sort of perfume, sheep, petite tree and on kind of way, but in a like everyone deserves, if we're going to continue doing a capitalism, there are some methods that are safer, saner and more consensual than others. And people deserve access to those, which hopefully is are the ideals I can reflect in the work that I do or the place where I work is accessibility. Uh, the initial hurdles of access being like, well, I, you know, and this is Kickstarter I'm talking about, of course. Right. I'm only, a, I, I'm a comic book artist and I'm really good at that, but I'm really bad at calculating shipping or making a video mm -hmm. where I talk to the camera or writing out the page. It's like, those are the commonly accepted hurdles of doing a crowdfunding campaign, right? But I'm always in the back of my head, there's a percentage of me thinking about what about people who say, where am I going to get access to a computer? Right. And that's like a problem I, I hope to work harder on solving for in the future, which I'm in great company with my cohorts and comrades at, at, at the big K. Well, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that because um, Kickstarter, I think, was extremely radical when it emerged on the scene and continues to be. But just in my time as a viewer, it's gone from what felt like very scrappy, you know, little home projects to almost like a class of artists and creators that Kickstarter is their medium the same way somebody else is big on Twitter and they know how to like roll out their game and get the video itself for the game before it's even come out. It's like a whole thing. And yeah, I'm curious like what your insider view on that landscape is and how it's transformed and is transforming. Well, I definitely think with age and longevity has come a lot of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But man, am I ever delighted to tell all that scrappy stuff is still there because I'm looking yeah. for it every day of my life. I'm on, I wake up and when I sit down at my computer, first thing I do every day, I go to the website and I go tappy tappy looking for whatever launched in the previous 24 hours. Wow. When the first thing you do every day is like I sit down and it's like someone's making gay Mothman enamel pins. Delightful. Yep. <laughs> this, making an art, this person's making an art film about wanting to have sex with their front lawn. Thumbs up. Someone yeah. else is making a, a plush stuffed animal of a bird caught in a California roll. It's called Sushi yeah. Bird. Fabulous. <laughs> All of those are real projects, by the way. Yeah. Someone made a plush. <laughs> I'm, I'm obsessed with the new 
rogue proliferation of boutique stuffed animals on Kickstarter. Like yeah. Your listeners will only be able to hear me, but if you could see me right now, my face physically hurts from smiling. Someone made a T-Rex banana. And you know wow. how dinosaurs have the little arms? It's the peel coming down and making the little hands of the banana T-Rex. Like I'm a professional amazement curator. I go on the little website, the Kickstarters, every day, and I just look at people's ideas. And oh my God, it's wonderful. In my purview as director of music, I've supported everything from comic books made by the dudes from Less Than Jake to Murder by Death repeatedly throwing bazillion person shows in underground stalactite tunnels to Christopher Tin, the first ever Grammy winning composer to make a soundtrack for a video game to drag multimedia experiences to Hatsune Miku is a Kickstarter project at Origin to children's albums to, oh God, but, uh, Roger Miller from Mission of Burma, who are like one of my favorite bands ever brought his new band to Kickstarter to do like a gallery installation, you know, everything and then some. And that's just in music, right? Yeah. Black scholarship for Renaissance classical composers doing research into traditional writing and arrangement. Like we have tuba symphonies. We have, you know, rap albums about computers, yeah. <laughs> like everything all the time on Kickstarter music. It's fabulous. And then on the other hand, I keep alluding to being a professional tech wizard, but I run a cross-category area of Kickstarter that was formally like solidified last year. It's now official. It's part of our framework. It's called Magic and Divination, and it mm-hmm. deals with all projects directly or thematically related to magic and the occult on Kickstarter. So that can be and has been everything from the best independent tarot decks being made in the world today to new translations of the PGM and the Hypnerotomachia polyphili, which is still live right now yeah. as of the time of this recording, which is great, and Giordano Bruno, to herbalist supplements for D&D and hand-forged wands made by a blacksmith who makes talismans to maker spaces. Um, for Wait, real quick, herbal supplements for D and D is that a supplement guide for D and D where it's like here's how to use herbs within the game, or are these herbs that you take while playing D and D? Both. <laughs> it's literally like here is a book. You know, I can tell like the the people who made that must have been like deep in the investment of their research. Like they must have read Ripa and like really gotten yeah. into their thing because it's a practical magical guide to herbs that also has all the correspondences for D and D. Ah, it's super cool. It's got authentic, real cool information about the magical properties of herbs, but also its application in tabletop games. Here's the real world version. And then here's the plus two to charisma that you get. Ah, very cool. It's so cool. And like, this is what I get to do for a living is I get to help people because as an outreach director, you know, the easiest way to shorthand what I do is I lend technical, creative and emotional support to people who are doing projects on Kickstarter. I have people call me at all phases of their project development from I think I want to make some money, but I don't know what I want to do to I just launched my project a week ago and I need help. And every phase in between, I've helped people physically edit what they want on the backs of their cards. I've helped them troubleshoot techie. I can't upload a photo things. Anything to do with the platform or the creative project that you're running on it, I get to help people with that all day, which I've long insisted, but now with the launch of Magic and Divination last year can cement thoroughly, is a generative interstitial magical act. Like the platform itself is kind of a servitor. Yeah. Oh, 100%. You're taking an idea and you're manifesting it to physical form through an intermediary. That's classical magic in the truest sense. Whether People come to me to do a magical project or not. I get to coach people through doing magic all day. And I have for four and a half years. It's fabulous. So I'm curious about what, um, how this breaks down, because I think you you laid this out nicely of 
there are some Kickstarter projects where it's, I have an idea and I need help bringing this idea into being. Like, I want to drive across the country with my dog and make this road trip movie. And like, we have not set foot. We have not bought the RV. Like, we need to do that. Help us get there. And then there's a lot more that I see that are like pre-orders. Like, hey, everybody, we made this cool thing. It already exists. Here I'm holding it in the video. We need to print it and send it to you. Do it that way. Do you have any idea of like, where the kind of divide falls and has that changed over time? I think that's an interesting way of looking at it because I I love to know what it looks like from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. Because what you put on your page, like what you would do in any sort of complimentary artistic act where you're showing people what you've done, it's all in the messaging. So someone who comes forth and says, I don't have any of the materials yet, but I have this fantasy of making a documentary about road tripping with my dog. That person has a more, let's say, imaginary person A, has a much more solid idea for who their target audience is, right? Mm. Maybe person B made a beautiful game that they want people to pre-order, but they've been in a myopia hole and don't have a newsletter and haven't built an audience yet, and they don't know who's going to want it. Right. Kickstarter helps people get access to all of that, both by virtue of giving people the platform and the diversity of media present on every campaign page to like actually explain your idea through a bunch of transmission methods, but also by virtue of the fact that we've been around for over a decade now and there's an organic audience that comes to our site every day just to support independent artists. So I don't know how that breaks down because one thing that you learn when you talk to people about their projects all day, every day, is everyone is both more and less prepared than they think. <laughs> ah, interesting. No matter where they're at in the process. It's, it's kind of like exactly what I was saying, to be honest. It's like uh, having the thing in hand does not equal preparation. Having mm. no thing in hand doesn't equal unprepared because as right. much as you do, Kickstarter is definitely centered around like a physical reward, right? And the easiest mm-hmm. temperature check, if anyone listening is like, could I run a campaign? An easy, like non-galaxy brain level temperature check is, is the project the thing people would get if they gave me money? Yeah. Cool. You want to make a book. You want to make a game. You want to make a tarot deck. You want to make sneakers. You want to make floaties for dogs who swim. (laughs) If that's the thing that people are going to get, they support your project. It passes the smell test. But on the other hand, that's definitely not the only thing you need because Kickstarter also supports social practice art, maker spaces, Mm -hmm. documentary film. I mean an album. Yeah. Someone can say, and I, I, I run this down with people all the time. I'm a musician. I want to make an album. Cool. On one hand, you just laid out what the thing is that people are going to get. Have you written it yet? Do you know where you're going to record it or how many musicians you'll need or what it's going to sound like? Like if the whole point of Kickstarter is I need the money to make this thing, then maybe you can't tell people or show people what the album sounds like yet, because that's the whole point. You need the money to record it. Right? So Having the thing in hand is not necessarily a requirement to run a successful campaign. The whole point of the thing at its origin, the whole function of the platform is I can't do this thing for real until I get the money in a lot of cases. So no matter what it sometimes looks like on the surface, the platform is super widely accessible to people across all disciplines. Effectively, and this is another like magical aspect of it, if you can leverage the rhetoric and the images and then the totality of what you put on the page enough you can convince yourself and the world, this is what every creator is trying to do to an extent, but in some cases more than others, that it already exists yeah. and it's worth supporting. So that's really what everyone is doing. When you were talking earlier about some of these weird off off the rails, like niche projects, it made me think about public access and how there used to be a channel where you could see some weirdo talking to punk rock bands and it. it's got the budget of a dollar fifty and a slice of pizza and then you go one channel over and you have the tonight show and it's you know johnny carson talking to the the stars of stars 
And there was all of these gatekeepers. There was an apparatus that even if you were, I'm just going to use New York as an example, because there's millions of people in New York. So there's millions of people who could watch public access. The big channels had a much bigger view and there were gatekeepers that said, no, we don't want the guy who plays uh, kazoo out of his butt to be on TV. Like, go away. We're going to have these people. And the internet has exploded that in a lot of ways. But I wonder what the, um, it's just the sort of raw landscape is where if you just have a Kickstarter and it is attracting energy and attention to different projects based on how sparkly those stars shine, of course, there's also, is the person got a big following already in that stuff. But it's interesting to think how that creates a new thing where, oh, all right, bootleg Funko Pops are just more popular and there's going to be way more of those than something that you and I might think is more interesting of like some niche occult thing, but there's just not as many people that actually want the, um, you know, Cornelius Agrippa informed D&D supplement guide as people that want the big, shiny, new pop stars album. And I'm curious how that's changing now as some of those gatekeeper functions are kind of dissolving and being replaced by mysterious algorithms that just cater to our basis desires. Right. Well, I will tell you, we are far enough into it that there is statistical research that heavily yeah. supports in a more general way the idea that the pandemic, it lit a new fire under a lot of people to support individual artists. And so mm-hmm. even outside of Kickstarter, independent crowdfunding platforms and support for individual artisans and independent arts has definitely gone up over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, for sure. And early on, um, naturally, like in the first month or so of lockdown, we were really on the ball, like eyes out for the nerves of our creators. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people during a time of great social upheaval we're like, oh man, I was going to launch a project, but now I'm not sure. Everybody needs help right now. What am I going to look like? What's going to happen? Is anyone paying attention to this, right? And so a few months after lockdowns really started here in the United States, and it all started to get really crazy, we published an article. Some great people on our Insights team published an article, and the title was something like, are people still supporting Kickstarter campaigns? The numbers say yes. Mm. I was amazed when this came out because it showed definitely a lower number of projects was launching. Right. Of the projects that did launch, the same amount of money or more was coming in. And that's remained totally consistent over the wow. course of the pandemic. And I've heard, you know, anecdotally and directly through research that I've looked at, but also just from friends who make their living independently through their art, that it's remained pretty damn consistent throughout the nature of the pandemic. So that's one thing I think is that, because, you know, I'm listening to Doja Cat. Yeah. I'm not immune to the basis desires. I drink a Diet Coke every couple of weeks and I'm like, Doja Cat, right? No problem. But Metallica is on the same streaming services. So I don't know why Doja Cat's the example that comes to mind. They're both great. I suggest a playlist where you just alternate between the two, to be totally honest. That's chaos magic. I do that, but I also, you know, I get my Patreon receipt every month and I know how much money I give to my perfumer and podcaster and seamstress friends who transparently outline their process for my entertainment. So shout out patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual because we are completely listener supported. No ads on here, baby. There we have it. Yeah, exactly. And so you're able to do it. The support has stayed and there has definitely been an influx of people who are interested more than ever in supporting individual artists since the pandemic started. So that's that's one thing I think is really interesting, even though we all, you know, we're also all on the platforms, right? We're all right. on Instagram or we're on Twitter or we're on whatever, where 
can only speak for myself, that's where I consume the majority of my like surface level content, right? I love a Kardashian outfit, but I give an ass ton of money to my friends every month through Patreon too. Yeah, that was something that I started thinking about, especially as like streaming services multiplied where it's like, oh, how easily do we spend $30 on Hulu, but then are quick to turn off $3 to an independent artist that it makes up so much more of a thing. I always thought this was frustrating at shows where people are like, $5, forget this, I'm going to go to the bar. It's like, you can buy beer at the store, bring it to the house show, your net cost hanging out with your friends is going to be so much lower and yet we'll drop a hundred dollars at the bar and not even consider that as like real money spent. Whereas if you gave a hundred dollars to a musician, I would be like, Whoa, that's crazy. So generous. Like, well, would change someone's life. Totally. Um, I, I think we're going to go full circle now and come back to this idea of integrity because I think punk, like any ideology belief system identity is both aspirational and full of shit like there are so many things that are wonderful about punk it's also a uniform that you can buy and you can just be total piece of shit that happens to wear studs and leather and like fast music so i think that idea of integrity has always been this little bit of like sand churning around in the oyster of punk rock trying to form that pearl of saying all right anybody especially now where it's so much more accessible and you can just google how to be punk can like wear the mask and show up at the thing and how do we like tell what's really real and i think that's similar with occultism where people's practices are private how do you know the difference between the person who's loudly talking about all of the demons and servitors I have on command and their practices nonsense versus somebody who's like got a very intense devotional practices and is tapping into something. And one of the things that has been my little niggling question for a long time is the way that new age and occult stuff is very capitalist. We go and we buy tools and books and tarot decks and all of that kind of stuff. And some of that's great. Some of that is also just we're perpetually buying and I'm curious with Kickstarter and the range of things that you're seeing in that magic section, um, how that's evolving and what your thoughts are on that. Oh, welcome to my life. This is like what I think about all day, right? Yeah. Well, kick it back. The obvious answer, at least to me, and not just obvious because I run the, the thing, but you know, obvious is the magical act of supporting individual and independent creators. The majority of the people in our category, in our magic and divination world on Kickstarter, are individual artists. Mm-hmm. I mean, now it's honestly been cool for the last couple of years to broaden my own horizons as like people in the game space and people right. in the publishing space want to make tarot decks because they see people are interested in it. And maybe publishers and games companies are run by people too. Mm-hmm. They're interested in this, right? They want to like toe in now that they're seeing it more in the world. You start to see it more. It's omnipresent in front of you. You want to try it out, right? Isn't Rider Wait published by a games company or it was for like a very long time? A bunch of different ones. Yeah. yeah. Everyone from Los Carbeo to US Carding Games makes their own version, yeah. right? But also a number of other historical decks, right? Tarot de Marseille, uh, you can find versions from the 14 through the 1800s being published by all sorts of companies worldwide. But of the new independent tarot decks that are being made, many of which, if not most, are coming through Kickstarter, they're individual artisans, and the majority of those artisans are coming from a magical background or the occult. Definitely the conspicuous consumption in our world is a thing. I think the majority of people, and I can say this both anecdotally and with data to back it up because I... (laughs) spent six months doing all this research before we launched Magic as a formal space, their primary driver for coming to Kickstarter, which kind of betrays the normal audience, is supporting individual artists from our community even before it's Mm. the thing. And we know this because, for instance, one of the things that we might look at when we want to make sure that the, the environment of our site is good and that people are happy is like, 
how many projects does a person back? Do they back one wow. Kickstarter yeah. or do they back more? People in the magical space tend to back multiple projects before they even get a single reward because the primary thing that's making them want to do it is the desire to support their peers in the culture community. So when I found that out, I was like, go babies. <laughs> yes, that's so cool. That's so pure, right? So like, on the other hand, as someone whose research is heavily rooted in the history of the economics of occultism, I can tell you what Kickstarter is supporting is going to look very different from a, a scaled out kind of mm-hmm. economy, right? So if we look at the history of the tarot specifically, because that is a lot of our magic category, here's what I think is going on. What we actually know about the tarot is this big compared to what is asserted about the tarot by guys who you imagine have voices like this, yeah. like meanings of all of the cards, you know, like that kind of thing. So just what we know, what we really know, which is fits in a bottle cap, right? Earliest history of the tarot, we know it was a game that was mm-hmm. in a lot of places because soldiers were doing it instead of paying attention, right? In the 18th century, we have what a lot of historians of it call like the occult tarot. And that's when we really know that it becomes a tool for divination. And that's also when we right. start to see like other divination systems start to come out, right? And then in the 1890 to 1920 period, we have the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn revealing mm-hmm. the secrets of the occult tarot. And here's what all the cards mean and all their correspondences up to the production of the Rider Waite Smith deck, right? Yeah. Then what? So we have this question mark, question mark, question mark from the late 1890s to the beginning of the 20th century. Now tarot is places. And throughout the 20th century, we have, you know, the emergence of like occult publishing houses and mm-hmm. we have the Aquarian tarot in like the 70s, which is a fantastic looking deck. And we have the Toth Tarot, which is pretty much you got pasta when you ordered a sandwich, but cool, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) But you pretty much have the Rider-Waite-Smith deck, a little Toth Tarot sprinkled on top for flavor because who doesn't like fish in their ice cream? And then you got, you know, some resurgence of interest in the Tarot de Marseille, but you've basically got a couple of decks that carry you through the 20th century. And the last major revolution in the Tarot was its mass production, both in terms of like dispersal of knowledge through mass publication and through mass dispersal of the decks themselves, industrialization from 1890 to 1920 or so. What we have going on with the internet and especially Kickstarter, weirdly enough, is the next revolutionary moment in the history of the tarot. There has never before been the opportunity for this many people to make new and unique decks. And yes, we see a lot of stuff on Kickstarter that's amazing and it's themed around a fan canon or it's based on an existing deck, overwhelming majority of decks that are being made on our site are new. They have new images, they have new systems, they have new themes, new levels of amazingly broad representation, new answers to the history, right? This is a new moment. And I think only in retrospect are we really going to be able to see this, but oh my God, we're enabling the next major historical revolutionary moment in the history of divination and cardamancy because this wasn't an option before, right? Only right around the turn of the 21st century and then another explosion with the revolution that is crowdfunding, was this possible? And so crowdfunding and its ability to reach huge audiences and the ability of those huge audiences to put in funding for things they want to see made is the next considerable revolutionary moment in the history of cardamancy and divination. And I think that is truly going to be the lingering impact of what Kickstarter is going to have to do with the tarot. It's not necessarily going to be the act of conspicuous consumption. It's going to be the freedom of creation and expression and movement that it's given to so many people the world over. That's um, that's mind-blowing to think about. And 
I'm always cranky and cynical. There's like two directions that I see it going in. One is the thing that you just, you know, the Cambrian explosion of different kinds of tarot decks, Oracle decks, everything going in every direction all at the same time. But then it's interesting because I, in my subjective experience, have seen with the popularization of tarot, a approach where it's like, I'm going to read what the card means from the booklet and this sort of like literal. So like in one sense, we're exploding tarot when everything's possible. In another, we're trying to be like, but what does it mean? What is the written down version of it? And it'll be interesting to see how those two trends intersect and kind of dance with each other. Because I think at the heart of it, we're shuffling cards to create meaning and mapping that meaning onto our own lives. And a deck of cards is fun because it's a game. If you have a deck of cards, you can read tarot for your friends. You can read it for yourself. There's a thing to do. There's a book that shows you how to do it. It is much easier than getting a book on occultism, even an entry-level book that's like 101 Wicca spells to do with things that you have in your house. Like, okay, that's great. But like, you still have to do those things. And that takes more time. You have to talk friends into you guys want to come over and carve candles. And then if you go deeper into the more esoteric academic things, like awesome that there's grimoires that are being translated and released for the first time. But that has such a high barrier to entry for someone who's not experienced with acquiring necromantic materia uh, that you know has kind of gone out of fashion since the 1400s. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that's like the tarot deck really is such a wonderful entry point that it introduces you to the, the element of play and magic rather than just like study and spirituality. I, I get exactly what you're talking about, which is this is the reason that the one class that I do teach occasionally is a history of how to read the tarot through history. Mm-hmm. In my everyday life, I'm just helping people make decks, right? And helping them facilitate production and proliferation of their art through Kickstarter. But when I teach a method of reading the tarot, I'm doing strictly visual learning that throws away the book of meanings almost yeah. immediately. This is how I teach it personally. You only have to ask why of something a finite number of times, and it's usually less than five before you get to because a guy said so. Yep. And that guy said it a little over 100 years ago. Okay, cool. This is what I mean by the history of what we know about the tarot fits in a bottle cap. That's not comforting information to a lot of people who've spent a lot of time studying the books of meanings to try mm-hmm. to lock them in. And I encountered this a lot when I first started, uh, you know, investing this amount of time and resources into my creators at Kickstarter right here. I really want to read the tarot, but I haven't memorized all the meanings of the cards yet. And like mass literacy is still a global aspiration, y'all. And the tarot is going to be closer to... Biblical teachings communicated through stained glass or even ASL or semaphore, non-spoken languages, languages that are sign-based because they're made for mass communication without the need for mass literacy. If tarot wasn't for everyone, it wouldn't have made it this long. We wouldn't know that despite its uncertain origin, it could be traced back in its earliest you know, forms to a wide swath of countries all over the world. So while I totally get what you're saying, I, I too rail against the idea of the strictness of meaning. Uh, of course, there's like a galaxy brain where you come around and you're like, yeah, you also like, you might want to learn that eventually because yeah. it's cool. It's like one system for reading. I think it's an interesting time to be alive and working in and with and making the tarot because we have the 20th century and all of its different permutations. So this is the one really cool thing, even if there wasn't like a million decks to work from, there was a lot of interesting stuff done in the 20th century with tarot. Mm-hmm. Shows people that, you know, it goes against the idea that you have to be like a level 417, a powerful witch to be like successful with it. There's therapeutic aspects of the tarot. There's the atheistic applications of the tarot for generating D&D campaigns or writing plots for novels. There's Yeah, Brian Eno's uh, non-tarot tarot deck of, absolutely. Um, I forget what it's called, the like idea generation one. I, I just, <laughs> oblique strategies. Oblique strategies, thank you. <laughs> 
I'm dealing with a lo- uh, long COVID myself. And the fact that I had to look that up the other day because I'm sitting there going, Brian, you know, blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> I had oblique strategies when I was like eight years old. Like, wow. That's awesome. I couldn't remember what it was called. Um, applications of the tarot are myriad now. You know, we have Italo Calvino, we have Brian, you know, just to like have a near rhyme in the middle of that. So I think that while it's still common and normal way for people to get a deck of cards and to go, oh my God, I have to squint and read the little pamphlet to like get it. I think because of the intercession of the internet and because of its continuing popularization in culture, we're getting ever closer to a time where people might find the tarot through therapy or they might find it through Leonore Carrington and like visual art, or they might find it through cinema or so on and so forth and not automatically curtail themselves to books of meanings. Yeah. And I look forward to that time, even though, like you said, it's also really easy for people to pick up a book and say, I'm going to start to puzzle this out with my friends. And the older I get, the more okay I get with that. I think like it makes me think of two people going to see an incredible film and one person is like, I barely watched a handful of movies in my life. And then the other person is like a film scholar. And if they go out to have a conversation afterwards and they treat each other with respect and have a good conversation, then the film scholar is able to learn so much from the person who's like, here's just what I thought it meant. I thought this meant that. And they're only pulling from their own experience. They're not pulling from like scholarship. And then if the other person is saying, well, you know, what's interesting, like you just thought the butterfly meant this. And actually, that's a tradition. And let me explain where that comes from. Not going, well, actually, and then launching into like, this is the way. Because when you have that scholarship, it can be both expansive or a little bit of a trap. It can bring your world in closer because then you're you're stuck on the literalness of it rather than, you know, read tarot for a child and ask them what they think it means. Very, very literally. <laughs> I used to. <laughs> In one version of my giant talk on how the book is wrong, the men are silly, and anyone can actually read the cards, I will car salesman that shit. I will be up there going, I can have you reading the tarot in less than an hour, like an expert. What I'm like, how badly do you want to doubt yourself? Let's try, right? Yeah. I would have one of my fun, like, shake up the brain intercessions was, I need people to learn to read tarot, like the 88, 89 Detroit Pistons. <laughs> Let's talk about Bill Lame Beer in relation to the tarot. And I would talk to people about the bad boys of Detroit and like how that's your actual framework for being a killer reader. It's like, let's talk about the Detroit Pistons. So that was always fun. I love it. Yeah, that that was a good one. And yeah, I think to your point, well, I realize this is like very reductive language and again, non-literal, but also like galaxy brain is probably okay to say this. The only true scholars are the ones who recognize that everyone is. Yeah, You don't know any more than the person with some hypothesis about butterflies at the end of the day, and your work would be nowhere without the influence of that person, especially in modern times. Waiting on experts gets us in a lot of trouble. We need to be looking to people who come from the communities they speak about and not just people who are accredited experts in those communities. And especially even to oversimplify it even further, especially as magicians, we have no reason to only ever sit or if you're sitting around and doing nothing but navel gazing with other magicians, I guarantee you, you're not like learning anything and your magic probably stinks. Well, I think it's also the difference between um, this theme of craft that we've talked about and I guess just sort of information. I remember having this point where I was at um, a cool kind of squat music studio space in Bushwick and like a bunch of older generation artists were living there. And I saw this bookshelf and I was like, Oh my God, they have so many cool, weird occult books. And I just had this moment where I was like, okay, let's just say that I could read all of these. Like how long would it take me to read all of them? What percentage of that information would I retain? 
Like how much would I even be able to store in my head? And then what ways would it change my life? It wouldn't some, but I'm not going to be able to go off in every single direction. I wouldn't have enough time in the day to implement the, you know, Jungian Kabbalistic practice I got from this book with the I Ching from this other one. It would just be this whole mishmash. And so I think sometimes when we're in this information age, there's the Dropbox link to like 20 gigabytes of occult text. And it's like, oh my God, that's so overwhelming. Whereas knowing more than someone isn't the thing, it's being able to share that craft and skill, finding the people where they're saying, oh, okay, I know a better way or I know other ways to go about this that might be helpful. Like, here's a great trick to improve your tarot readings. Here's a nice way to clear your thoughts better in meditation. Like, there are valuable skills. It's just sometimes they get buried under that avalanche of, oh, well, obviously you've read this person in this book. And, you know, again, we have our our voice coming back in. And then, you know, there's easy rebuttals to this guy, which is, have we looked at any primary sources from that era, especially... You know, we learn so much about the history of magic, not through the diaries of magicians who were oftentimes not doing that because it could get them killed. We're learning it through court records and through right. artistic depictions and, and stuff like that, which, you know, if you get into the history of it, um, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> nearly every woodcut from that era, they have the book with them. No one ever expected anyone to read and memorize the book. It was uh, in a lot of cases, and this is another reason why I harp on the idea of literacy in the tarot as being an accessible form of magic, because literacy was restricted in a lot of cases to the clergy Mm -hmm. which is how we get to the clerical necromantic underground a phrase that i love very much that's promulgated by a lot of our peers but it's this idea of like who was privileged enough to be doing not the work of magic itself but the reading that was who could read al cummins has a really great point about the cunning folk that books were just sort of talismanic objects they hadn't even read the book they might not even be literate but when you come and you see that there's books on the shelf you're like ah this is a good local wizard i'm in good hands uh the same way that the chiropractor has eight thousand degrees on their wall and like we all do these things to sort of prove that we've we've got the secret sauce. We could do a whole a whole other thing on the nature of the talismanic book at the chiropractor, as I'm I'm a big lover of what I'd like to think of now as like Amish magic, basically, which is exactly what you just described. Also, shout out Dr. Al Cummins, from whom I cribbed the phrase clerical necromantic underground, and who also just today, at the time of recording, announced his next book on Hadian Press, which you can pre-order now. I love Al. Everything he writes is wonderful. He's a true genius and a scholar and someone who does the craft all caps. Um, his new book, just uh, which is about uh, geomantic Enochian calls, was just announced this morning. Oh, so. wow. Fresh off the press. I haven't even heard that yet. That's amazing. Yeah, he has the big news of the new book today. So trust me when I say I love to read the magical books. It's like I have long stumped for uh, magical literacy as a reparative act for those of us who come from backgrounds where literacy was forbidden. Like that idea of the cunning woman with a lot of books mm-hmm. is in some people's minds, like literacy or intelligence being a potential tinderbox for the witch trials as we understood them in America, like being too mouthy or too educated or blah, 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 for women in femme spectrum people. Um, That's often one of the postulated theories for why the witch trials, you know? So that idea of literacy being now a redistributive act for some of us, like I used to rail against the idea of the armchair magician, right? Mm -hmm. For me and for people like me, 
being as educated as humanly possible is a rebellious act in in relatively close historical terms, right? And I don't want to lose sight of that. I understand what a massive privilege it is to be me now doing what I do and talking about it this openly. It's hugely important for me to have that reflected. And I think that's a very valuable point because I, I get hung up on the, the metaphysics and like, how do we think these things work and how do we trick ourselves into it and how does this play into capitalism and, you know, games and games. That's where my wizard brain goes. But I think sometimes it's okay to stop and go, you know what? There's part of me that likes the aesthetics of this. I I like weird, funky black light head chop posters. I like I like seventies occult art. I like books about meditation and magic and magical history. And everyone will have their own preferences within that. The same way that some of us want a dumb movie with explosions, and other people want a five hour slow character driven foreign film. Some of us want to dive deep into the most authentic scholarship imaginable and some of us want you know the angel prosperity guide from Llewellyn that we bought at the mall and that's like you know a different preference and ultimately uh these are just our pursuits that is why i love my job yeah because i work for the accessible platform that allows for the my little pony steven universe harry potter sailor moon grimoire mm-hmm. At the same time, it allows for a detailed hand-cut reprinting of the Noble from 1556 or whatever year it was, um, in the same place that allows for like Smith-made talismans and so on and so forth. Right. So like that exact thing, because some of us want angel numbers and some of us want Hellenistic astrology and some of us want classical French tarot de Marseille and some of us want the magic that we first learned from anime. Yep. I, I, I read with an anime deck. That's <laughs> <laughs> I am the gardener in a, what a privilege. Oh my God. I wake up every day thrilled and scared. <laughs> yeah. I somehow found myself in the position where I am the, you know, like this is my hermitage. This is my like little garden and anyone who wants can come to me at literally any time to talk about a project. Yeah. What do you think is the second biggest trend? Um, I, I'm sure it's tarot by a, by a long margin. And then what's, what's coming in second? Books, whether those are grimoires or D and D supplements or stationary uh, journals and that kind of things. Everything from like a lunar calendar to yeah. there is a project right now that I, I absolutely love. It's super cool called Diary of Your Personal Daemon, and it's super cute. It has like great mm-hmm. illustrations, and it's like this is a guided journal to like introduce you to your like tutelary spirit or your inner right. or whatever. Like that's new. That's like not something someone's done before. That's cool, and I'm like waiting for it to fun because I'm really excited for this creator. I just saw that. Um, yeah, when I was looking at the website before this, and it's interesting. I think one of the things that's so funny is like we talked about punk throughout this episode, and you know, you think of your cliche high school like a breakfast club situation. It's just one of the identities. There's things that go, you know, everyone's listening to music, everyone's going to parties, there's different ways that we do it. But when you look at the like occult practices, and you get to to the heart of it, you could take the like raw, like simplistic stuff and go, actually, this is the same thing that's in the therapy workshop book. And this is the same thing that's in the like, more new age self help kind of thing. Like, we're all just trying to journal about our feelings and get more in touch with ourselves and create change in accordance with our will. Like, (laughs) the end of the day, you know, whether you want to put a pointed cap on or you want to like drink bulletproof coffee, it's the it's the same goal. This is why I love the work that uh, for one of many reasons I love the work that Mitch Horowitz is doing right now. Right. Like, writing about the new thought movement, which back in the day was like me fresh out of my undergraduate was like I'm going to do my PhD in man self-help. I want to learn yeah. more about why Dale Carnegie, you know, that mm-hmm. was 
colleagues of mine, um, putting together that transition from the early 20th century when we went from theosophy and Blavatsky and the Golden Dawn and Freemasonry to like think and grow rich and mm-hmm. have friends and influence people like new thought and the transition from a culture to the new age. Oh, and that's and that's that's definitely that story versus storyteller thing where reading one simple idea, the Machorowitz book about new thought, that was like the one that now he's written like a ton, but that was kind of the first one was mind blowing because it just peeled back and it said, all right. All of the things that you see in the world around you that you just like, you know, you can be whatever you want when you grow up. If you think it, you can make it happen. Just do it. Think different. All of these corporate slogans. Those were revolutionary thoughts not that long ago. And now they've just been ingrained in the same way that I think magic can be the thing where every product manager meeting is going to have the tarot deck and, you know, we'll be consulting astrology. But I'm curious with how do we find that spark of integrity and keep that flame lit? You hire wizards. You hire wizards. Yeah. Get wizards up in your start up because we are everywhere, man. And that is something that I know goes back. You can look at new thought and you can look at like where NLP grew from Think and Grow Rich. Like Mm -hmm. there are wizards in every echelon of society. There are people of faith and there are people who you, I mean, what is data prediction other than like a bizarre modern oracle or line. If you're throwing ones and zeros, it's as good as geomancy, right? If you're predicting future yeah. future growth and this, that, you know, it's, it's astrology for computers. Um, you hire wizards because we are a great asset. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's not just in today's day and age where there's a massive resurgence of interest in this kind of stuff. I mean, I will say, we all know what it means when like Arby's does an astrology thread on Twitter. It means Mm -hmm. really means there's someone on their staff who's interested in astrology and everyone's had to hear about it for so long. They finally said, okay, fine. We'll do this on our Instagram story, right? Like as putrid as it is, I also don't think it's terrible, right? How do you act with integrity in a day and age where this is a real influence on capitalism, whether subconsciously or on the surface, you hire wizards because there are so many of us in every field. And oftentimes we're at the forefront of what's new and what's different and what's next. You can get really, really far by hiring magically minded people and compensating us adequately to share our arcane and eldritch knowledge with your Instagram audience. If you're you're out there and you run a business and you're wondering where to go next, hire a wizard. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, Early on, one of the first things that broke my mind and set me on this path was an interview with Grant Morrison. Mm -hmm. And they talked about at the end of the idea of like being the poison pill, like don't try and run out and go look at sticks in the woods at the expense of retreat and think that you've escaped capitalism by diving into the belly of the beast and creating that change uh, from within, which is, you know, a very romantic idea. It's it's hard in practice. I'm sure you've dealt with plenty of back-to-back Zoom meetings that have you questioning uh, both your sanity and your magical ability, but it's worth it. Um, I, I really love everything that you shared with us about the way that you have this front row seat to the growth of independent a culture and and all of the wonderful things that are flowing from it. Uh, what is a little bit of magic our listeners can take home with them? What is a small spell that people can do to make their reality slightly better? Oh, well, <laughs> in the interest of full disclosure, I'm going to put a big old tipper gore parental mm-hmm. advisory on the front of this. One of my favorite exercises is Saturn's box of boundary dispersal, let's call it. Okay. I have a fun time, you know, I, I stress test my magic oftentimes by running it through the furthest and most grandiose and grotesque of spheres. I am an avowed Saturnine magician for mm-hmm. the big smile on my face I've earned <laughs> from yeah. to hell and back. And so because we we talked about this in a number of different ways in the last hour and change of conversation, the four corners of boundary dispersal where the, a great magic spell, 
and the parental advisory comes with, uh, be careful when you deploy this because it can really mess you up. <laughs> I'm asking people specifically to use this one the next time you feel you catch yourself saying, I can't do that. Yeah. Right. Don't don't go questioning all the layers of your reality at once. This is not a solve all. But the next time that you want to, you know, I want to wear this, but I'm going to look stupid, you know, or what if I, I've always wanted to write a book or I've always wanted to make a tarot deck or I've always wanted to start a podcast or I've always wanted to apply to this tech company, whatever it is. Right. When you catch yourself going, but I can't do that. Right. I said, if you ask why of anything usually fewer than five times, but because we're, we're operating the sphere of Saturn, we're going to stick with four, right? Mm. You're building a box around yourself that you then recognize as invisible. The next time you catch yourself saying, I can't do that, you ask why. And then you're going to say, well, because I'm going to look stupid. Why? Well, because other people are going to see me and they're going to say that I look stupid. Well, why? That's never happened to me before, actually. So probably won't. Yeah. <laughs> you go, why? Uh, because it would be super weird if that happened. I can't imagine doing that to any other person. I will put on the outfit and leave my house, right? So I love this. Wrap yeah. yourself with a barrier. It's actually like an inverse barrier. It's, you know, Saturn is the maker and the destroyer of all boundaries, right? Saturn illuminates for the magician and, and goes there how many of what we perceive as adversarial boundaries are actually completely fictitious. There are real limitations around all of us all day, every day, from physics to, to social institutions to capitalism, whatever the case may be. There's some stuff where you hit a boundary and you'll still be able to say, why? Because I cannot get outside of capitalism. Okay, mm -hmm. why? Because capitalism is an oppressive force that seeks to like separate us. And okay, well, why? Usually it only ever takes four times yeah. in order to completely shatter something that you previously saw as a hard boundary, putting them. And of course, now I'm realizing the listeners cannot see me. I am physically placing four markers around myself with, with a hand gesture as I do this. I'm building a sort of square. You're building the box to recognize that it's an illusion because I think sometimes that's the problem is that we see something as it's just not on the map. It's in that blind spot. And so we're like not even able to consider it as an option because there's only two doors. What do you mean? There is no third door. What are you talking about? And by saying, okay, well, if I'm going to create a wall that blocks the third door, what would that look like? And then therefore the doors on the other side of that wall. Exactly. And so you place this box around yourself to remind yourself that the boundary in most cases, if not all of them, you're challenging something like, oh, I've always wanted to write a book, but I can't. Why? Because I can't stick with it all the way through. Well, you haven't tried yet. So how do you know that? Why? Well, because I gave up on this other project. Well, why? Because it sucked and it wasn't making me happy. Why? Because I know myself and I know I want to write a book. And then you sit down and you get started, right? Those four points of a non- boundary around you then become this protective fortress of why there's two ways to look at life nothing matters mm -hmm. at all and nothing matters at all yep. <laughs> <laughs> like we're trying to get from a to b by by tracing this this very safe and secure reminder that nothing matters at all around us the next time you feel this is a, again it's like a a wonderful meditation for the next time you find yourself placing an arbitrary and unnecessary boundary around yourself. Sit quietly and and sit. Let it be a tight boundary because it, it can be really hard. Like, again, I am not joking. If you sit down and you try to immediately jump headlong into a childhood trauma, mm -hmm. 
late stage capitalism or environmental destruction, which you can, you can do. <laughs> I'm just saying it's not the friendly thing I'm advising you to do here is like a, a bumper bowling exercise, right? You can do that. You can also easily spiral out that way. Source been there. Yeah. Sitting down and saying, I can't. Why? Asking why four times. The wise, wise. Why, wise, wise. Letting that strengthen you. You get to decide whether that's an acceptable answer for you or not. Try it. See what happens. Thank you, Meredith. For more of the magic that Meredith does to help creators tap into their magic, visit kickstarter.com slash witchstarter, which is a special project running this October that's helping promote and create more visibility around awesome magical occult projects on Kickstarter. So if you've got a tarot deck you've been dreaming of, maybe now's the time to get it out into the world and into actuality. And like we discussed on this episode, the magic of this podcast is literally not possible with you all. This is how I pay my editor. This is how I buy sandwiches. This is how you make the physical substance of my wizardly body come into being. So if you'd like to help buy your favorite wizard a sandwich, you can visit patreon.com slash this podcast is a ritual where you get to support this podcast, access all kinds of cool playlists and hypnosis tapes and other things I make, and also get behind the scenes updates on my new book, which is a very exciting project that is coming into actuality as we actually speak right now. So let the words in you out into the world, becoming real and substantial substances, making the world not just more magical, but slightly better for all of us. This is your favorite wizard, Devin Person, leaving you with yourself and the magic within you.